Welcome to the Business Bound podcast, where authors of business books chat with me, Tasha Glasgow, about their books. In this episode, I talk to Lee Lefevre about his book, Big Enough, Building a Business that Scales with Your Lifestyle. Lee is the co-founder of Common Craft, the creators of the original explainer videos that have earned over 50 million online video views. Common Craft produces educational guides, ready-made videos, and digital visuals that are used by educators in over 50 countries. Lee and his partner Sachi are Common Craft's only employees and work from their home off the coast of Washington State. We talk about how to know when to pivot in your business, the concept of return on luck, the new way of thinking about shareholder value, and much more. This episode is sponsored by The Pod Squad, the podcast agency that books experts on relevant podcasts to increase their visibility and help them spread their message to a new audience. Full disclosure, my day job. Check out thepodsquad.com. Welcome to the show, Lee. It's nice to be here. I enjoyed reading your book, and I really enjoyed reading about the evolution of your business, Common Craft, over the last 10 or so years, and, and also your, your approach to business. Take me back to when you decided to leave your job and start your own business. How, how did you know it was the right time? <laughs> you know, um, it took some coaxing. Um, my partner in Common Craft, our company is named Sachi, and she's my wife. And and she's been behind a lot of our biggest transitions. She, she's perhaps the braver one of the two of us. But, um, you know, I had been an online community manager for a few years at a company where we both worked together. It's where we met. And right. I really felt strongly about online communities. I just, you know, what has now become, you know, sort of the social media revolution started in discussion forums and things back in the early 2000s. And um, I just loved the idea of the of online communities and struck out on my own and created Common Craft as a consulting company to help companies understand online communities and uh, implement them mainly to help them work with customers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt very strongly that there was a need but it took some coaxing to kind of work up the the gumption to actually quit the job. And Sachi stayed on at the company and kept our health insurance, uh, which people have to do here in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, that gave us a cushion for me to kind of start for start take a year or two to really kind of get it going. Um, and that was yeah. in 2003 that I started that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've been around, uh, since I was on the internet at that point. So I do really remember what it was like and it's so different now. It's, it's amazing how far we've come (laughs) online in the last 15 years. It's awesome. So what did you, what did you think your life would be like as an entrepreneur? What did you think it would look like and what was it really like day to day? Well, you know, even even early on, you know, I've, I've always had these entrepreneurial ideas and thoughts, even as a younger person, and, mm-hmm. and thought, you know, the dream would be having a big company and being, you know, in the book I'd write about, you know, wanting to be in the pages of Fast Company to show that I had <laughs> I had been I had made it. Um, 
and and I thought that when I moved to Seattle in 1998. Um, but then start when I started consulting, I started working from home in 2003, and. Um, it was comforting. It was something that I really enjoyed. And I, I still had thoughts that maybe maybe Common Craft could become something different. But the longer I did it and the more that I started to think about how businesses are structured and how to think about how growth really happens in businesses, the more I started to see that maybe consulting might not be the best path forward. And maybe there's other ways that I can work, still work from home and still be small, but, but pursue different opportunities. Right, right. You mentioned in, in chapter two of the book about the the idea of return on luck. I, I can't remember, was it Jim Collins that you said? Yeah. Um, mentioned that. Yep. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how it played a part in the next step in your business? Sure, sure. So the idea of the return on luck is that, that luck really happens, both good and bad luck happen to everyone. And what makes the difference is the people who are prepared to notice the what he calls a luck event, like something that happens like, whoa, I just got lucky. Um, it happens to people from, you know, it happens to everyone at, at one, point or, one point or another. And um, you have to be prepared for that. Like if you're in business and a luck event happens, then um, you've, you've got to be able to see that it's there, but also jump on it and put your, your full effort into getting a return on that luck, like turning that luck into something that you can use and you can, you know, uh, become more successful because of, and he uses the example of Bill Gates, like Bill Gates didn't let up for decades, um, when uh, he and Paul Allen and others got lucky early on. Um, and so for us, um, we started making these kind of funny little videos in 2007 that used paper cutouts on a whiteboard to explain social media. Uh, it started with RSS and wikis and blogs. And to, to our surprise, um, those videos were viral hits, or the, what I say is the 2007 version <laughs> of, of viral hits. And um, they totally changed our lives. Like we... Um, we suddenly became known as explainers and video producers and educators, despite having uh, no experience um, in those fields. <laughs> um, and it was a whirlwind, and we just felt, wow, that was our luck event. Yeah. It's really interesting because um, I've been in digital marketing for a long time, since the early 2000s. And um, I remember seeing the dawn of explainer videos and that. And it, it was really fascinating to find out that it originated with you. I was like, that's really amazing. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not certain if I consciously um, came across your company over the years, um, but I've seen, to know that it really started with you, it's, it, it's got to be a great feeling as well, knowing that you kind of started this trend. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been, um, yeah, I've been sort of trying to figure out how to, how to talk about that because I, I'm, I guess I'm a fairly humble person and I think like, well, there were so many, there are so many other things going on, but um, I do think that that is, uh, that is what happened, I guess, is mm. that um, uh, we sort of, it really was a, a luck event. Um, we weren't building on anyone else's work that we knew of at the time. And I think it was a really a good combination of timing. That was part of the luck was that mm. YouTube was just taking off. So this was 2007 and social media was just taking off and people, there was this existing need or this demand for people to understand what a wiki was and what a blog is and what social networking is. And so it was this sort of Venn diagram of these elements that were all coming together at the same time. 
and really causing a lot of confusion for people who were not deep into the technology. And, and I think what we saw was that that these tools were p- potentially transformational for people. They were often free and fairly well designed, and we just wanted to, people to adopt them. And that was what drove those videos, was trying to help people see this, this thing that, that is out there for them, that they can do, and they can, they can actually write things on the web. And, um, you know, it wasn't the intention to like start making explainer videos that, that term came later. It was really just about trying to solve the problem of people not having a great way to learn about technology and, and trying to, to communicate in a way that was more for our parents than it was for technology people. But where did the, where did the idea come from? You're saying you're trying to solve that problem. Mm. Um, how did you get the confidence really to just go ahead with it and think, well, yeah, we're going to put that out there. <laughs> well, Sachi had just joined the company. So for the first time, we were a two-person company and mm-hmm. we uh, we needed to earn a living. And I, I, was, I was able to do some consulting then. So the consulting was still what, what was kind of keeping us fed, um, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, we just saw the, we, we kind of both really have an interest in trying to see the trends, what we call like the zeitgeist of what's happening. And, and we were both convinced that YouTube was going to be a big thing. And we said, let's, let's start making videos. And so I started trying to be the person lecturing in front of a whiteboard while drawing things on a whiteboard. And, and that was a pretty convincing failure because I had never done that before. And I didn't realize (laughs) how, how hard it is to do that. Um, and so it was Sachi who, in my deepest despair, came through with this idea <laughs> of pointing the camera down onto the whiteboard so that the whiteboard fills the frame and only using hands and markers and pieces of paper to tell a story that's about three minutes long. And so she sort of invented Common Craft style early on. And once we started that we started making those videos, um, we could tell that like, this actually works. Maybe we can do this more. It it wasn't clear if people would like them, but when we were making them, we were like, Oh, this is, this is easier. This is easier than, than lecturing in front of a whiteboard. Um, so she gets, she gets the credit for, um, you know, the, the original idea that sort of changed our perspective in video. Right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, so, you mentioned at the end of chapter four about shareholder, what you ask, what shareholder values matter to you? Mm-hmm. So can you elaborate a bit on your new way of thinking about shareholder value? Sure, sure. Um, you know, there's a a common saying that people often say about business. Jack Welsh was one of the people who who made it famous years ago that businesses exist to maximize shareholder value. And that, that means money, you know, valuation of the company, stock price, that's what businesses do. And that's obviously a big business thing. But no matter what size the business is, there are still shareholders. It's stakeholders and shareholders like um, a husband and wife or a another partnership that runs a team. That They're all they're all businesses and they all have shareholders. And what we realized with Common Craft is, is once we realized we were going to be a two-person company, that um, we were the only shareholders and we got to decide what value we wanted to maximize. And sure, we needed to earn money. We needed, we needed income. We needed the business to be profitable. But 
in terms of the other values that matter to us, um, we started to think that, wow, well, what else? How could we orient the company to produce unconventional values or values that don't end up on a balance sheet? And so we started think, thinking about, like, what are our values? Like, what are the things that matter to us? And we came up with things like um, having control of our time, um, feeling the feeling of independence, being independent, being able to work from home, um, you know, being able to not have to go into an office, uh, not having employees. Th- things like that became things that we saw as like this is a formula that maybe can uh, produce a lifestyle that that we want, and maybe those are things that we can use as you know, strategic business that can inform our business strategies as well. And that, that's kind of the idea of thinking differently about shareholder value is, is sort of like, what are you optimizing for? Yeah, you, you, you had a good analogy about um, a video game and how with each level that you kind of uh, complete, there's this other level and there's just more and more that you kind of want. So I thought that was that was quite powerful, really, because you really have to really decide for yourself about what you truly want out of life and what you want out of your business. Yeah, it's really, it's really true. I think that um, there is a really strongly held belief and, and, it, and it, it's very real. I think that you, you go into business to grow, you go into business to get rich, to pay off, pay off your debts, to lit, to, you know, build the biggest pile of money as you possibly can. And I think that, that I, I don't, think that that's bad. I think that there's a lot of good things that come from that. And I never want to denigrate successful entrepreneurs. There are some of my heroes and, and all that, but I want to, I want people to see that there is a choice that like that, it doesn't have to be that way, that there's more than one play. There's more than one way to, to sort of play the game of, of being a successful person in business. And it might not be the game of the biggest pile of money because, uh, you know, as I wrote about in the book, there's some, there's some evidence from studies that, that, you know, money starts to have an, an effect on people that they don't necessarily anticipate, and it can actually take things away, take things out of their life, like happiness and time, that they don't realize until uh, maybe it's <clears throat> it's too late, and they start to have to figure out how to get back to the lifestyle they had before the money. and And I hope that the book will help people see that they can be rich in other ways, and that the that they don't have to look at their neighbor's new car and think, how am Mm. I going to get a better car that they can look more inward and think about like what, well, I'm rich in family. I'm rich in community. I'm rich in home. I'm rich. There's, there's lots of ways that, that you can be wealthy um, that don't necessarily have to do with, with being um, a hugely successful entrepreneur who is always trying to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. It it really did resonate with me because in my early twenties, uh, my husband and I started a business. Uh, we were doing CD and DVD duplication. Yeah, back in the day when those were a thing. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and and we we started with very little money. We started in a room in a, a flat, and and we and we grew the business. And I don't know. I was I, don't, I must have been twenty three, twenty four years old at the time, and I felt that the business would seem successful if we moved into an office building mm-hmm. and if we 
you know, we had nice furniture in there and the sign up and get employees. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. I, I do look when, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, man, if I had had this book or I'd had some advice for someone to say to me, you know, that's not really important. You didn't really need to do all that. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you saying that. I, I do hope that that is the case. Um, I think that, that things are changing now. I think partially via uh, COVID, the pandemic, and so many other things happening that people are starting to reevaluate what success looks like to them and, and mm. what, what, are the, what, what the signals are that show that they're living the good life. And, and I think that that's changing. Like it's not mansions and mega yachts. I mean, sure, there's going to be people who do that. But I think that there's people who see that their business is not a vehicle for, for the mega yacht as much as it is for their own satisfaction and happiness um, in their lives. And I think that that's been the effect of, of COVID, I think, is people being quarantined and working from home, you know, seeing the world sort of turned upside down, that they're seeing like, oh, you know, this is a time that that I can start to think differently. Like the world is having an influence on how I perceive my own place in it and, and how I want to you know, what, what goals I have in the future. And, ma and maybe that's smaller and, and not necessarily bigger. Yeah. Do you have any specific advice for an entrepreneur that may feel that they're forced to evolve right yeah. now because of the pandemic? Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot of people in really uh, tough situations now. There's a lot of people out of work. There's a lot of people who are really struggling. So I, I really uh, feel for people who are, who are going through that. And I, I do think that stability is really important right now, but for people who who are thinking about creating a business and thinking about moving to that next phase of their life, um, you know, some of the advice I have is to to think about your values and and what your values are, like what where your happiness comes from and where your satisfaction comes from, and how a business might contribute to that and not and not take it away. Um, you know, and on the more practical side, I think that um, kind of like you were saying about office space and a sign and employees and those sorts of things, um, that's all overhead. That's all expense. Mm. And I think that especially when you're starting out, really keeping a tight grip on overhead and fixed costs that create long-term debts to you <laughs> um, make it that much more difficult. Um, you know, in our in our case with Common Craft, we started to see that because we're just a two-person company, that our personal expenses were actually quite related to the company. That if we were saving money and, and spending very little, then it didn't take that much for Common Craft to be successful for us. It didn't take that much because we were able to support ourselves. And I think that, that that's this kind of different way of looking at business is that your your personal spending is related to the success of your business. And that if you think about what you need to survive or what you need to support you and your family, then maybe your business doesn't have to be a billion dollar business. Maybe it can be a smaller business that supports what you need and not what you think you need. <laughs> I guess you could yeah. say. Yeah. Is that the, the monitorium part of uh, the, you, you, uh, <laughs> you, you, your wife uh, created a monitorium. So yeah, I was going to ask you about that exactly what that is and how you guys were able to really put that into place. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this again came from sort of our, our teamwork. I've 
in the past not been super diligent about uh, my spending and spending maybe perhaps frivolously. And, and Sachi always thought I was crazy for, for the way that I thought about money. And, um, she's been a positive influence on me in a lot of ways. But, um, one of the things we started doing is at least a decade ago, um, we started the, doing this practice we call living the monitorium. And the, the word monitorium is like a moratorium on spending money. It's like you, you're trying to spend less money. And, and we've done it in the past for a big trip that we wanted to do or a house renovation or a big project where we would say, okay, we're going to change our lifestyle starting today. And we're going to live the monitorium for six months. And at the end of it, then we'll have the money we need to do what we want. But we're going to spend the six months living, intentionally changing our lifestyle. And in the early days, uh, well, I should say as a part of that. So that means um, really just looking at your expenses, looking at your credit card bills and thinking, what can I cut out? What can I do? So it means maybe uh, canceling some subscription services, you know, eating out a lot less, entertaining at home, you know, just there's everybody has their own way of doing that, but really cranking down your expenses. And then Part of it is the game of seeing if you can beat last month's numbers. And there's a kind of a personal inter- interpersonal game as well as sort of a team game of, of kind of deriving happiness out of the challenge of how low can you go or what can you do. Um, and I've, I've come to think of it as almost a training program for resiliency <laughs> where, <laughs> where like if you're if you don't feel like maybe I'm not prepared for the next pandemic, then I think that doing one month or six months of living the monitorium will give you the practice and the knowledge to understand that like, I can do this. I can flip a switch and go into low expense mode. And uh, I think everybody should do that. I think it's the right way to live. Honestly, I think that having done the monitorium many times um, now we just basically live it a lot, live it almost all the time um, because it feels like that is the secret to the good life is being responsible about that kind of thing. And And I think that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah. Is there something to be said for allowing experts in to do certain things so that you don't spend too much time on something? Because there's got to be kind of a value in your time, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, we definitely we definitely work with experts. I mean, even, you know, with Common Craft, we don't have employees, but we work with, with contractors uh, for our website, Um you know, we're, yeah, there's, I do believe in, exp- in, in experts and there's a lot of people, um, that have been a part of common craft in one way or another, and including our personal lives who have been transformational because they are faster and more efficient and, and honestly a lot better at things. <laughs> um, there are, there are things like painting a house that are challenges that we want to do. Um, even, even right now today we are, um, we're, we just moved to a place where when we're building a house and we're taking on some of the some of the work, like we're staining uh, cedar boards that will be on our ceiling and things like that. But there's 95 percent of the project should be done by professionals or they're just not going to be <laughs> as good. So I think that, um, you know, people have their own their own sets of skills and their own tolerance for how much professionalism they need in whatever project that is. OK, yeah, I, I get that. Going back to the various business models that you used in Common Craft over the years. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, how did you know when it was the right time to pivot? Because, for example, you guys were doing custom videos at one stage, and then you focused more on doing original videos. And how, how did you know that it was the right time to pivot to something a bit different? 
Sure. You know, early on, we were once those first videos went viral. Um, we had we're, we were fortunate to have a lot of demand. So so people were coming to us every single day asking, could they have a, a Common Craft video? Uh, and we were making our own videos at the time. And for a while, it was just overwhelming. We didn't really know what to do, what to do really. Um, but we reached a point where we felt like we had to decide what business we wanted to be in. Like what, what is Common Craft going to become? And this was in 2008. So it was about a year after the videos had hit. And we sat down and looked at all of our options. And, and one of those options at the time was that people were asking for digital downloads. They wanted not to use the videos that we had put on YouTube, but they, they needed the files to put in presentations and intranets and classrooms and things. And we saw that as an opportunity that we had never considered before, that people would actually license our videos. And it started off really small, but the idea came from our, our fans and, and people who were interested in Common Craft and, and saw value in the videos. That's been, I think, our biggest contributor of, of these ideas and how we've pivoted is listening to what people are asking for. And um, they were asking to download the videos. So that gave us this hint that there might be a business model there. And in 2008, we decided that that would actually be the business model that would be our primary focus because um, it allowed us to do some things that we felt like were important for our, our happiness and our lifestyle. And that was remaining a two-person business. That was a constraint that we decided in 2008 was it would always be a two-person business. And, and when you put a constraint on something like that, it really – causes you to think about things differently. Like you look at business opportunities and think, can two people do this? And if they can't, then you go to the next one. And licensing the videos was something that fit perfectly because it meant, it meant that it was almost a product, that our videos were a product that you could make once and sell multiple times. And um, that was really a transformation transformational part uh, of Common Craft in 2008 was deciding that the future of the business would be based on a a more product kind of ba basis where we're licensing our videos versus services, which is making videos for others. Yeah. Was it easier, you think, for you guys because you're a couple, you're married? Was it easier to make those kind of decisions because of your relationship or was <laughs> well, it more difficult? <laughs> well, yeah, I think that, um, every couple has their own version of that. Um, we're, I think that Sachi and I get along quite well and we, 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 while we're very, very different people, um, we have, we have very similar values when it comes to the business. And so I think because it was only us and this was part of the idea of being a two-person business is if the idea didn't work, if it failed, we were the only ones that felt the pain. We didn't have employees who also felt it. We didn't have investors who felt it. We didn't have other people. So I think we could feel like we could be more risky because we were prepared to take the risk personally. I think that if, if Sachi were another person sort of off the street that I had gone into business with, that might have been different because they might have their own family. They might have their own thing going on that's tied to this decision. And uh, being a couple, we could we could get through the risk, I think, a little bit better. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of coming up with the ideas and the directions for your business, did you think it was ever an issue, it just being the two of you? Or were you relying, like you said, 
on listening to your market a lot? Yeah, I think that the the users and listening to the market was the biggest thing that influenced our big decisions was yeah. us both agreeing like, yes, there, there seems to be interest here. In our relationship, I'm the idea person and Sachi's the sort of um, executive. Like she's the one that, that makes it happen in a lot of ways. And we actually have, we don't have a lot of shortage of ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. she, I wish that she could be here to talk about that because, um, I, I have a lot of ideas <laughs> and, and she's known, uh, in close circles as the chief party pooper. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> because, she, because, um, I'm always proposing things that maybe make different degrees of sense to her. And, um, she's the one who picks them apart and, and finds the the value somewhere deep in down deep down inside the idea that might the inspiration might have come from the market, but how we do it and how it actually ends up at the end of the process starts with my idea, but really goes through a lot of iterations between us. Um, so we we rarely feel stuck. I think we always have an idea on deck. Like, this doesn't work, then we'll try another thing. Okay, so you were absolutely never tempted to hire any staff because online you see at the moment so many entrepreneurs selling this dream of having staff or having an entirely outsourced team and you can just run your business in a few hours a day and that's the dream, right? So Mm -hmm. did you ever feel tempted to abandon the way you were were running your business and, and maybe move to doing that where other people were doing it and you were just checking in for a few hours a day? Um, I really don't think we did. Um, We really love, we love the work that we do and we can do it from anywhere. So it's not something that is a burden in that way. Mm. Um, I think that, that our perspective has always been that, yes, you could hire someone or you could have a personal assistant, but that's it's overhead. Like it not only is it an, is an expense, but it comes with so much more than just them producing work. It's a two way street where you you are giving them work. You're having to give them specifications to do things. Yeah. You're having to manage them. They get sick. They do something that needs to be redone. Like yes, at scale it can work, and I, and, and in different businesses it can work. I mean, I, I think we are somewhat fortunate in that. Our business is based on a digital product that that doesn't require a team. Not everybody is like that. Um, not every business is like that, of course. And I do think that 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 having a staff is is required in a lot of cases. Um, mm. But for us, it always just seemed like we can do it. Like we can, if there's if there's something that needs to be done, we can do it. And we don't, and then do it without overhead, without the the both mon- monetary as well as sort of mental overhead. Uh, of managing it. Yeah. Is there any kind of downside to staying small in terms of, for example, burnout, increasing the the possibility of burnout because it's just the two of you? Um, I think that, yes. I mean, there are downsides. I mean, yeah, (laughs) as I say in the book, we, you know, we do everything. So we are the janitors as well as the, (laughs) um, in the support people, as well as the, uh, you know, video creators. So, Let's see. So can you remind, say, say your question one more time? I'm sorry. I want to make sure I get it right. If there, are there any downsides of staying small, yeah. for example, increasing the possibility of being burnt out? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, 
Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question because you know Common Craft is set up to be fairly uh, self managing in a lot of ways, um, yeah. but we also serve a relatively small audience. So our audience size is not one that that it, that we're getting ten support requests a day, um, and you know I don't know like if if Common Craft suddenly had ten times the amount of members. And we were getting, you know, a hundred, a hundred support requests a day. I wonder how that would feel. We probably would get burnt out, but the way that we've always managed common craft, it's always been serving a relatively small and happy group of educators mainly. And it's, it's been manageable. And I think the system is set up, you know, we designed it to be more of a, a utility website where um, people who use Common Craft come and download videos and put them in their presentations. And they don't need to talk to us about that. It's more of we're really just selling our intellectual property. It doesn't have moving parts. It doesn't have things that break very often. <laughs> um, and so the, biz, the the sort of the way the business works is set up to scale um, without a lot of pain. Um, so we haven't reached the point yet, but, um, we're also prepared for it. I mean, Sachi and I have a good work ethic and I think that, um, we would try to figure out a way if we started to get burnt out to, to find some system we can use to address it. Um, and who knows, I'm not saying that I, that we will only ever be two people, even if, you know, the world starts coming to our door like that. If that happens, then we'll see. But <laughs> that's not been our plan. Yeah, I think it's really important the way you phrased it. You designed it that way. So you've really designed your business to fit your life. So that's I think that's so powerful. It, it was a, it was an intention. And one of the examples in the book is um, one of the ideas we had was we could have an online community attached to Common Craft where you become a Common Craft member to use the videos. But then you also can work with edu- other educators. And I think it's a great idea. And I think that it could work. And maybe it would be uh, help us be more successful, but again, it's more overhead, more things to manage, uh, more things that can sort of spiral out of control <laughs> in some ways. And I think that we've that that idea of control has been really important to us. So we chose not to do that and to think about it being a utility website so that we could uh, so it could scale and it could be something that's easier to manage. Yeah. So, what is the biggest message that you want your readers to take away from your book? I think that it's, you don't have to do things the way that it's always been done. Um, I think that, that, that whether, I think this is true in your personal life as well as in business, that there's a lot of expectations about how you're supposed to run your life, how you're supposed to run a business. Why would you run a business if it doesn't grow? You know, things like that. And I really think that I want people to know that there is a choice. You do not have to do it that way. And that if you start to think outside of that, that thought process that you might find that your business can support things in your life that you didn't realize it could. And that, that includes things like, uh, you know, time and flexibility and independence and happiness and things like that, that that's, it goes back to those sort of shareholder values. So the big thing is realizing that you have a choice. So what's next for you? I think we're going to, Common Craft has been going since 2003. So I think that that's going to be our main jobs for the foreseeable future. Um, We love doing it. We're going to keep making videos. Um, I love writing. Um, This is my second book and I'd like to publish more books, to be honest. I'd like to be uh, an author of many books over time. Um, 
this this book is the first time that I'm really starting to try to develop my personal brand as an author uh, to a company as a as sort of separate from Common Craft. So I say that Common Craft is my day job, and writing is sort of my passion project. Um, and I think that you know we we recently moved out of the city into a more rural place, and more than ever, I am focused on living a more simple, slower life. I think that I'm I'm in my mid forties. Um, and, uh, I think it's partially due to the environment we live in, but also, you know, having lived in the city for 20 years and things like that, that I, um, I think I see new beauty in slowing down and taking things a little bit more slowly and, and living a more simple life. So how can our listeners get in touch with you, Lee? Uh, so my personal website is leelafever.com, and that's where you'll find my books. Uh, you can find my book, Big Enough, at bigenough.life. It's the book's title with .life at the end. And then uh, our company is Common Craft at commoncraft.com. Excellent. I will put the links in the show notes so that everyone can have a look. And I really do encourage... Um, our listeners to take a look at your book because it's it's really different to a lot of the stuff that's out there on the market at the moment. So it's a really great read. Oh, I appreciate that, Tisha. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lee. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave a five-star review on whichever app you're listening on. So check out the website businessboundpodcast.com for show notes and information about upcoming episodes. 